Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre. Sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. This particular recording is the edited interview. We also have longer uncut versions available on our website along with show notes to accompany each episode so you find out more about all the ideas, people and books mentioned in the show. Anne Curtis is a Sister of Mercy of the Americas who has given her life to what she calls the two feet of justice, direct service and structural change. In more recent times, this means not just human justice, but ecological justice for Anne. Through integrating the spirituality of ecology into programs, practices and decision making, Anne hopes humanity will come to know what Teilhard de Chardin called the breathing together of all things. She is now the Executive Director of Mercy Ecology, whose mission is to inspire reverence for Earth and to live in harmony with all creation. Anne's work is in collaboration with Mercy by the Sea on Long Island, Sound in Madison, Connecticut, and Mercy Farm in Benson, Vermont. Welcome to Thresholds, Anne Curtis. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. You're very welcome. And you're a sister of Mercy of the Americas, and you seem That's to right. be really giving all your life to justice, like human justice and then eco-justice, and now you're kind of in the realm of eco-spirituality and facilitating all of that. Can you tell me, uh, way back from the beginning, um, a story or some, some sort of experience you could remember, remember from your childhood about how this all began in you? Sure, sure. Um, Actually, it's childhood kind of into um, early adolescence that I think I would really pinpoint a couple of things. Where I grew up, uh, we had a big, big area, big yard that was wooded with a stream running through it. And um, it was at the time coming from a big family in a neighborhood where there were lots of other kids. We were pretty much always outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in a beautiful part of Western New York State on the shores of Lake Ontario, one of the Great Lakes, and also in what's called the Finger Lakes region, um, very hilly, um, with lakes that from the air actually do look like the fingers of a hand. So um, without, even, without even knowing it, was exposed to great beauty. Um, two other things that were significant. One, I had kind of just, well, we all do, but I think I had in me, and it wasn't um, at all kind of crushed or pushed out, just an innate sense of um, kind of, I, I would call spirituality, and being outdoors and exploring and playing, I think really fed that and, and nourished that in me. But a, a significant experience I had and I'm thinking I may have been maybe around 14 years old, 15, was summer. And I noticed in our backyard, which was very wooded, a collection of monarch butterflies. And it just kept growing. And they were lighting on a lot of the pine trees. And it was one of the most amazing magnificent things I've ever seen. And I've never seen anything like that again. And I remember just watching mesmerized 
by this arrival of hundreds of monarch butterflies and be delighting in it for one thing, but really trying to figure out why or what was happening. And it really wasn't until many years later that I learned about the migration of the monarch butterfly. And in fact, experienced part of that migration in my own yard. And it's, it's a pretty amazing journey that um, has stayed with me um, in terms of my own interest and the significance and beauty of the butterfly in the biosphere and the connection and also what it just means spiritually and symbolically. Yeah, and I, I note that in my research about you, I, I came across the Mercy Monarch Milkweed Project, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes a lot of sense, given that you had that huge experience and how you what you're doing right now, uh, which is actually really inspiring. Maybe we can get onto that. Um, so tell us about this project. It seems like a lot of school groups are getting involved in protecting the monarch habitat and creating habitat. Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, the monarch population um, has been dramatically reduced and impacted by loss of habitat and use of pesticides uh, throughout the, uh, North America. And they're just an amazing, amazing species in that four generations of them will migrate from Mexico through North America and then make it the return trip and overwinter in the mountains of Mexico for the winter. One of the things that we've done is invited, in particular at this point anyway, our Mercy schools and institutions and residences, healthcare facilities, uh, whoever has a place where they can create a pollinator garden to do that um, is a way of, of kind of networking the food and what's necessary for the monarch because they only will lay their eggs on milkweed plants. Mm. If more and more of the milkweed is, is removed, that really inhibits their ability to reproduce and to, and to continue. And we know in the chain of, of life that the butterfly is so significant and it's a real indicator of the health of a biosphere. So um, one of the things that's been really delightful is it's a very easy thing to do, mm -hmm. to plant large, small, or whatever pollinator gardens. And basically, that's just um, planting milkweed, milkweed that's indigenous to the particular area where, where you might be, along with nectar plants that the butterflies feed off from once once they're, they go through their metamorphosis from the caterpillar to the butterfly. And it's a great learning opportunity, of course, to plan and, and actually plant the garden, then cultivate it, and then to have the great gift of seeing monarch, monarchs come through. So um, we actually have more um, groups that are participating that just haven't registered yet, but um, along mainly the eastern corridor of the United States and then the west are the two main migration routes. Um, so we have a good number of groups that, um, and we just initiated it in August, already have started gardens or are in the planning process. Mm. So how does so that it's work? It's a great learning, yeah. yeah. So you're traveling around and you visit, say, schools and encourage them to take this on board as part of their Mercy identity. Is that how it works? 
Well, actually, we do a lot of it just using the communication tools of the internet, mm -hmm. um, sending out the information and kind of going back and forth. And um, once once they get onto it and they register, um, we do a periodic collection of photos and information and try to share the stories of what's happening with their gardening. And if one of the lovely things, one of our universities sent me um, a, a group of photos that for Mercy Day, they involve students and faculty in a project of planting and creating a pollinator garden on their campus. So it was kind of a really nice connection to specifically specifically link it to uh, Mercy Day. Mm. And uh, with this, I think, understanding that's really starting to grow, that it, in particular for us as Mercy, you know, our commitment to serve those who are poor um, in the past, again, for many reasons, has been kind of limited to um, human persons, the two-leggeds. And um, over time, we've really tried to open up understanding and our sense that um, all of created life that's endangered or whatever is also poor and suffering. Our earth is suffering. So it's very much connected with our charism mercy, of mercy to care for earth and all of all of the creatures that we share this planet with. Hmm. I think a lot of people might find that surprising, that really what you're doing with the monarch butterfly, just as one example, you're extending that lens of mercy and, you know, Mercy schools and other communities are celebrating Mercy Day by doing this work, which would normally be put into the basket of an ecologist, really. But you're taking it on as core business in your Mercy identity. How did, how did we get to that point? Um, surely that must have been quite a journey in itself. Well, we're still working on it, I would say, and it's, it's continuing to develop. Um, we have a ways to go for sure. But I, I think part of it's kind of a coming together of a lot of factors. I have to say that um, what's happening uh, across the world with young people has certainly awakened the consciousness of our students in particular. And once there's an opportunity to give word or articulation to an understanding of, of who is poor to wider, they get it. It doesn't take a lot of a lot of explanation. It 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 seems very very clear to them and kind of almost like an aha. Of course, there's been some really lovely work that's been um, begun and opened up, even theologically. Elizabeth Johnson, um, and her work, I think, has been a great help to us in giving articulation to the sense that those who are poor and those who are suffering includes all of created life. And there's so many illustrations of that in the scriptures. Uh, I noticed that you were quoted in the book by Kristen Heyer, Prophetic and Public, the Social Witness of U.S. Catholicism. And um, you, you were quoted as um, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan and also the Exodus story and Moses, and we need both we need the two feet of justice the direct service and the structural change and um, it strikes me that you've been on this journey of justice as a lobbyist um, and you were on the LCWR global concerns committee uh, the leadership conference for women religious 
and you've had an extensive kind of background in lobbying and advocacy work. Um, but I'm really curious about these two biblical stories that you draw on, the Good Samaritan story and the Exodus in the same sentence. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. They really, I think, scripturally illustrate what you refer to as the two feet. And the Good Samaritan story, which we know so, so well, really gives a good uh, invitation, a, a good call, a good um, imperative to really respond to suffering or hurt that we see, the person injured along the side of the road, to go and to give them aid, give them assistance immediately. You see what's needed and you respond. So um, in some ways that might be in the category, what we consider charity, you know, very immediate, alleviating immediate suffering. Um, and, and as mercy, I'd say we're really very good and very practiced at that. Um, the mercy heart really does respond and open up when, when it sees need, when it sees suffering. Whereas the Exodus story, I think, is really the illustration of looking at the systems. There are people, um, the Israelites were enslaved and under the thumb of Pharaoh. And, um, it, and in many respects, uh, generations at that point, but in a, in a land that really originally wasn't their homeland, and so we know in the story, they cry out, you know, save us, save us. And um, Moses, who's raised up from among them and doesn't feel a very, to be a very capable leader, but is raised up, um, really calls for um, like a real turn, turning upside down of the system, that they escape slavery, that they step out of that system, that they move away from it, and that they protest it. And I think um, what that what that does or what that says to us is that we really we need not not necessarily the same person, but we need people in communities attentive to the systems that are oppressing, as well as it responding to what what immediate needs are, whether it be hung, hunger or ill health or a lack of clothing or um, lack of education, whatever it might be but that we need to change systems and create ways that don't continue to keep people in a place where just immediate needs are continually tended to. Um, so I think slavery is a system. And so it really calls for getting underneath it and changing that system. And the Good Samaritan really calls us to tend to the immediate. So um, I think, our own tradition really calls us to tend to both those things. I think one of the challenges is that tending to systems um, is takes a lot longer. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't always feel like there are a lot of results that can be seen. Um, it, for example, when I was uh, working as a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., you know, you can work for a long time uh, in terms of either stopping a bad piece of legislation or trying to get past something that would be helpful to people who were in need. Um, and it could take it could take a couple of or more. It could take years. So it's um, the systemic end of it uh, 
is is very challenging. Living in the US, how do you feel the shift of structural change is going at the moment? Oh, <laughs> it's dangerous territory. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think we're in a very, very um, difficult, difficult time in this country um, where systemic change in many ways um, is even more challenging, even more difficult because we have such polarization and differences and, and it's, and it's, in so many of our institutions, it's not necessarily limited to the United States by any matter of means. Mm-hmm. Means, I just think that it's um, very exacerbated here, um, and and it's been difficult for a, a number of years. It's not something that's just happened in these past couple. I think we've seen the lid sort of come off, um, but but in terms of systemic change around legislate legislative. Um, Wait, uh, means I, I, I'm not so sure um, how possible it is right now, um, and I, that doesn't mean that you stop, of course. But um, hmm. I think I think we're in a time where uh, other kinds of of efforts also need to be thought about. We're, we're in a, a time unlike any other, hmm. so we need, I think, some kind of other thinking and creativity. Um, it's interesting. We also are very, very much is uh, the mercies of the Americas. Um, like many of our other uh, congregations across the world, I know, involved in using our investments for systemic change as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I see that again as it's long haul, of course, but I see that as another way to approach and deal with some of the systems. And again, it's it's very it's hard work. It's long haul work, it's staying at the table and, you know, persisting. I love that scripture story about the, the widow who is so persistent until finally she she wears down, you know, the person she's asking for for um, bread from and they say, okay, okay. And yeah. in many ways I think I think that that's that's kind of a good a good reminder to us to uh, stay persistent and to keep trying uh, lots of different ways to address the kinds of things that are of such concern at this time. In your programs um, that you lead, because you're now the Executive Director of Mercy Ecology, um, right. mm-hmm. you lead programs at Mercy Farm in Benson in Vermont and at Mercy by the Sea. Is that right? Right, yeah. right. So do, do these sort of, um, do, you, do you raise these, um, as a result of your programs, are you raising the structural change and, and also the direct service elements in, t- in your work in ecology as well? Yes, of course, it all depends on what a particular group might be looking for mm-hmm. or asking for. Um, I, um, I have to say I actually spend a good bit of, of time when I'm with groups right now on, on two things. And one one is really, uh, again, the spirituality and the connect with the spirituality uh, because I, I'm so convinced of the importance of that. But the other is trying to um, open up a deeper awareness um, around uh, what 
uh, Thomas Berry calls our story. Mm. And I, it's out of that that I find, in, in particular with those of us who are, you know, of a certain age, um, an opening because as, as Thomas Berry would say, the old story um, is no longer working. It's dysfunctional because it's a story that in, in ways has been reinforced by religious traditions as well, that is an example, sets the human in, in domination over creation is as opposed to seeing the human is one with and interrelated with all of creation. And it's that domination over that has really led us to a view that the earth, this planet and its resources are there for our use, for us just to take and extract as opposed to see that our life is really bound up one with the other. And that as the fate of the earth goes, so goes the fate of the human person. But until that, that understanding or that consciousness is really, I think, opened up and we begin to see ourselves um, in, in, a, in this new story, in a new understanding, I, we, I don't think we're going to be very, very successful. And it's an uphill struggle as it is in terms of finding um, a new way of being in relationship with a life that is sustainable. Mm-hmm. And yet you you yourself, um, I mean, you, apart from those experiences as a child that you described, you went on to become a Sister of Mercy and to become part of this um, kind of the old story that you just described in a way that the Christian tradition was in some ways implicit um, and, and behind. Um where in the story did your consciousness sort of expand? When did you start reading Thomas Berry and, and what changed in you um, and why? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good question. Um, actually, it was in the late 70s, early 80s, and I was um, new, newer in religious life at that point that I was first um, – exposed to the writings of Barry and, and Matthew Fox and Brian Swim. And, and I, I knew once I began those, that reading and I was able to attend some trainings and workshops, I knew, um, and it was very much from within, that that, that was my story and that was um, the grounding of a spirituality in a way where I found I found a home and I found a place. And I think I was, not I don't think, I know, I was very, very fortunate in the opportunities that I had from early in my adulthood to really be able to step into the writings of these, you know, great thinkers. Um, I remember being ex- exposed at that point to the women mystics, Hildegard of Bingen, Bingen and Matilda Magdenberg, and their sense of who this God, this mystery, this divine was, and the, how it was so um, so much a part and found in, in the beauty of creation, as well as in the beauty of, of, 
of human life and 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 all of that. It really, I would say all of that set me on a path that has just continued to unfold. And I was really able to really step back into that in a very, uh, a very big way um, two years ago when I finished um, my time in leadership and was able to take a sabbatical. I really focused it on um, ecology and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've come like full circle in this, that it, it brought me back to the place of beginning um, but a thread that uh, that has always been there. And and I guess maybe some folks looking at it might see that it's, might think that I stepped into something very different, but in many ways for me, it's been the continuation of an unfolding uh, thread. Mm. So you had two terms in leadership, is that right? That's right. And am I right in thinking that's 12 years? That's right. Well, <laughs> so during all of those years, I mean, were you able to bring this consciousness and awareness to your decision-making process as part of that leadership team? I hope so. Yeah. Um, I, I think there were ways that that did happen. Um, and it was it was a team effort, of course. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other women that I was uh, on the team with we're very open and very much in, in touch with and in tune with this. Um, it's a challenge um, for leaders of a congregation, given the breadth of what, especially at this the time we're in, need to tend to. But um, I, I'm hopeful that we did. You know, our, our institute here in the Americas, we have what we call five critical concerns. And um, we, we worked hard at responding and working at them is an integrated whole, mm-hmm. but yet um, they were also distinct. So care of earth was is one, um, immigration, nonviolence, anti-racism, and uh, women. And you don't have to, um, I don't think, spend a whole lot of time before you know that if you touch any one of those five things, you're touching the rest of the others. Mm. So I think there was always that effort in terms of our our work around our critical concerns to really approach them as a whole. Like why, in particular in the United States, were we being flooded with um, immigrants and again, as you, as you look at that and you look at their stories, no one wants to leave their own homeland, but they do it because either there's, they're experiencing violence, poverty, degradation of earth. Um, and, and we know in the United States that those that are coming, are, it's more and more women. Um, so uh, it, it, it is all of a piece. And like I said, I think in our responses um, and what we tried to do and also in using our investments to really use those five areas is what would lead us in terms of our responses and our kind of decision making. Mm, mm. What sort of links are you seeing there between degradation of earth, immigration and women? Well, women often leave where they're living um, because 
there's violence and the violence is often directed at them because they are women and or there's violence um, that they've experienced in the, in the very land that, that they're part of, that they can no longer live there. Their living is, is not, um, it's not sustainable or they've been impacted by um, uh, drought so they can no longer grow food to sustain themselves or they've been impacted um, by things Haiti. Haiti's an, an incredible example mm-hmm. where the country's been denuded uh, because of the need for you know, firewood and mm-hmm. and for, for food and all kinds of things. And that only exacerbates what happens when there's a hurricane or a flood. Um, when the land's been denuded, you, it, there's mudslides and flooding. And so they're driven from where they live as a result of the combination of the poverty and the impact of climate and and great violence that we know is perpetrated against women in um, probably every corner of the earth. Yeah, and I can see that one of the ways that, as you said before, that you are personally responding is through your work in Mercy Ecology. Um, And the mission of that group is to inspire reverence for earth and to live in harmony with all creation. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about inspiring reverence for earth? Well, one of the things, both spaces, um, our place in Vermont, as well as uh, Mercy by the Sea, are are beautiful places. The land is wooded. Uh, Mercy by the Sea is right on the water. So one thing is that it offers a space where a person can really be in touch with created life. And I think until you, we see ourselves in a place or in a, in, with opportunity to be touched by the, by the amazing gifts of creation, one will not begin to care for earth and all of created life. Mm-hmm. So the spaces themselves, I think, really facilitate just that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the programs that are offered um, always try to bring together a lot of the elements, again, that invite us, I think, to become more aware. Um, but in both places, it, well, in the growing season anyway, there's food that's grown that, it, that it's used in the meals that are prepared for the guests there. Mm. So not only is it a beautiful space, but they they are able to take part and share in beautiful food that is fresh, that is untouched by chemicals or pesticides, and that is served beautifully. So it's also an experience of the gift of what can happen when one is really in touch with the fruits of the earth. Mm. Um, Both places, the programs are intertwined with um, hopefully people becoming more aware and in tune with themselves and the beauty of creation and the beauty of the divine found in their creation so that there there hopefully then can be an opening or what's carried back home is a a sense of desire um, to put to change behaviors whether they be personal 
individual behaviors or behaviors that hopefully, again, touch into some of the systemic efforts that are needed as well. Mm-hmm. Who's participating in these programs? You know, it varies um, from place to place. Um, at Mercy by the Sea, uh, people come from all over. There's a variety of retreat programs as well as um, a group may come to have a meeting or a conference of their own mm-hmm. um, in the space. Um, there's also opportunity, and um, I think it's a uh, probably something that's somewhat typical of many Mercy places, uh, um, a fund that's been created for groups that may not be able to afford coming to a place like Mercy by the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, there's, a, there's a pretty good variety of people that come. Um, yeah, do you, do you see a lot of um, people from other Mercy ministries or Mercy communities um, coming along? Yes, they certainly use the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. our, our place in our place in Vermont is not it's not real close geographically to a lot. Um, so we're really trying to grow that. Mm-hmm. And um, some of our colleges and universities and high schools um, do bring students there for um, an opportunity of of service. So um, that's a little bit different. Um, what happens there where they can come and uh, especially in the good weather, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. work, work in the woods or, um, you know, work in the gardens. Mm -hmm. And I guess it must be covered in snow for several months of the year. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is. So it's beautiful though. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about that. Like what would people see if they arrived at the, the Vermont, site mercy farm what would it be like to arrive there well there isn't much around except for the land um you see the green mountains of vermont kind of rising up in um from one view Um, we have a, a lovely wooded part of our our property and actually we've just inaugurated there um, a cosmic walk. Mm. So path has been created. It's about two tenths of a mile through the woods. And we have markers along the way that tell the story of the unfolding of the universe. So you can kind of, as you take that walk, um, like get a sense of the 13.7 billion years of the unfolding of life um, as it happened in the universe and on this planet. Um, as well as enjoy the beautiful woods um, in that walk in the fresh air. Um, we have a lovely, it's, um, it's, a, it's a nice size house with a beautiful um, all-purpose room, uh, lots of window, lots of light that looks out on the gardens. Um, there's a barn. We have um, just a few animals, a couple of sheep, chicken, rooster, ducks, barn cats, kind of add to the interest of, of life and what happens around there. Um, there's a beautiful pond and some paths to walk. I was just going to say you're yeah. very much um, in an area that is quiet. You can see the stars at night because there's not a lot of light. Mm-hmm. And how many people can come and stay there? How big is the house? Um, probably 12 people can sleep there. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that sounds absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> how, I was going to ask, though, how essential do you think it is that the Sisters of Mercy keep these places for this purpose? I think it's critical. I think because of the kind of time that we're in, the opportunity to facilitate or offer a connection with places of peace and spirituality um, and connection with earth are probably more critical than ever. Mm. I think I think we're in a time that I would call a spiritual crisis. I guess it depends on kind of where you stand in it. In some ways, I suppose it doesn't matter how you give name to it, um, but I, I think it's a spiritual crisis that is that is creating an environmental crisis, a sense of um, you know looking for meaning and connection. And we've seen in this country anyway um, that the among young people in particular, the largest number of young people when they're asked their religious affiliation will identify will say none n-o-n-e mm. no religious affiliation but yet i've also had the experience um, with those who identify as no religious affiliation of incredibly good searching people who are committed to social justice who seek community and also have this hunger that I would call a spiritual hunger. They they often do not have the words um, as to what that might mean, but there's something there that they're really seeking and looking for. And I would say it's a connection with uh, the divine, whatever whatever name or configuration you would you would give to that. So I think places and opportunities that can offer a space for whoever to come and really come in touch with that that um, spirit, that energy um, is critical. And as I said, needed more than ever. Mm. And I notice you've um, recently been involved in creating some resources for Mercy Global Presence. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Which is kind of a global mercy inquiry process i suppose and seeking to act especially in response to earth's degradation um so tell me about your your involvement with mercy global presence and and what are your hopes for it um i was asked if i would create the uh, prayer reflection for this particular month with the focus is on um, integral ecology the connection with poverty and kind of all aspects of our life. Mm. So it was really, it was a, a very uh, lovely opportunity to uh, myself spend some time really reflecting and praying with what, what might that mean? What might that look like? And I think it's um, very significant for us as mercy, uh, what Pope Francis has called us to in the great gift of his letter or his encyclical, Let Out to See, where he really, I think names that connection uh, between what's happening with the environment and what is happening with suffering peoples and, and calls us to really respond to that. So um, I think my hope would be that these kinds of efforts through, um, through mercy, through mercy global presence continue to draw us as mercy and, 
it would be our, our colleagues in ministry and our students and um, associates, companions, all those who are somehow linked in the mercy world uh, to really um, be opened up by, the, by those resources and possibilities and deepen our own sense. I think of what I referred to earlier is that new story, um, kind of the, the redreaming of what it means to be um, part of the unfolding universe at this time that we're living in, and what that calls us to, given the ways that we have been living and the ways that we have been formed. Yeah, it seems to me that you would um, need to have to be pretty persistent, like the persistent widow in doing the work that you're doing. Um, how do you maintain that persistence yourself? <laughs> well, um, I think community is essential that you, that I, and each of us find a community that we're part of that um, kinds of kind of holds us when it, it gets tough or when hope is flagging. Um, and in, in kind of calls us forward. So community would be one aspect. And it could, it, I mean, it's for me, the community of mercy, but it's a community of the colleagues that I connect with, um, both here at Mercy by the Sea and at um, Mercy Ecology in, in Vermont. So that would be one. Um, the second would be, I think a practice of prayer and contemplation and, and, you know, people use uh, different practices or call it different things. But for me, it's, it's, and I mean this in the best sense of the word, it's the discipline of, of really daily immersing myself into that, the presence and being aware of that and um, relying on the energy and the gift of the divine and in all that I'm going to be about. Mm -hmm. I think another thing is um, to really myself to keep my keep my myself immersed in in the beauty and the wonder and our creation. Um, I, I, I have the sense that um, attentiveness or awareness and in, in an intentional way is so integral because we can get lured um, very easily, I think, into um, busyness or all kinds of things. So um, it's it's kind of a, a simple and maybe even simplistic thing, but um, my uh, workplace, um, the little office I have is at Mercy by the Sea. And as I said earlier, it's right on the water. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, but where I'm situated, I could come and go without really seeing the water. Yeah. So I make sure um, each day that I go to the water and um, breathe the air. And at least somehow, however briefly, uh, come in touch with uh, creation in mm. a very deliberate way. Um, what, one of the things that I, I it was so touched by 
um, from so many of uh, those that I had the opportunity to learn from during my sabbatical year was their own sense of delight hmm. in what they were doing. And, and, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's tough work. It's a hard time we're in, but there was such a delight in so many of them. Um, and I think it was because they were people who never lost that sense of amazement or awe or wonder at the beauty of creation. So I think that's really significant. Um, and, and to continue to learn and to read and to step into more deeply even um, the thinking of people that are uh, far more uh, versed and in, involved than I am so that I keep learning and deepening and nurturing um, all of this in myself. Mm. So what are you reading at the moment? Um, actually, I'm reading the new biography on Thomas Berry by Mary mm -hmm. Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, the unfolding of his story and his thinking and um, and the contribution that he he has made to to our world. Mm. Do you see that Thomas Berry has made a particular contribution to the Sisters of Mercy when you reflect on that? I think so. Um, these aren't necessarily his words, but um, many years ago, we had a kind of a graphic that stays with me. And especially as I think of um, some of Thomas Berry's work um, in the, the line is, have mercy on earth. Mm. And it, for me, it connects with Thomas Berry, his great sense from the time he was a child of uh, the land and the beauty of the land, and then the unfolding understandings of the magnificence of the story we have. So I do think, yeah, the, the sense of, for us, of having mercy, mercy on earth and earth as all of creation, the four-leggeds and the swimmers, and <laughs> as well as us two-leggers and the mountains and the beautiful flowers and to understand the power, the power of, of, of creation. And I, um, I probably didn't um, ask you this in preparation, but I was just wanting to ask you if you had anything that you would like to read or quote, um, either from that book or any other readings that um, inspire you. Mm -hmm. Do you have any in front of you at the moment? By any chance, or <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. That's okay. But that's okay. I, yeah, I was just gonna say that there is this, and this is old. Something that often comes to me, um, kind of when I'm I'm thinking like this, um, and it's from Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, mm. which goes back a good while. But there's this really lovely part where the two women women are um, having a conversation and the women Shug and Seely and um, be, begin to explain the, her image of God um, and kind of she says moving from the old white man with the beard sitting on a cloud in the sky to understanding that God was in the trees and the air and the, the field of purple flowers 
And then she says, when I had the sense, if I'm kind of paraphrasing, <laughs> she said, I had the sense, if I cut a branch off the tree, my very arm would bleed. So that's always stayed with me, kind of holding this sense of the expansiveness of God mm. and our understanding of God uh, and our images of God is so so essential to how we, I think, step into um, ecology or environment. Um, and that we are so much a part of one another that seeing the destruction of created life, that to feel that deeply is almost as if our own body, mm. we're, we're holding it and feeling it. Um, so anyway, early on, it just kind of gave me a sense that has stayed with me all these many years later. Yeah, see, that's such a powerful image of if you cut the branch, it's this, if, if only we, more of us had that sense of um, that it's cutting our own body, you know, uh, the world mm -hmm. would be a very different place, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't be burning the Amazon, that's for sure. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah. So, Anne, I want to bring our conversation to a close now and um, just really want to thank you so much for your work, this um, relatively new chapter in your life as well um, since finishing with the leadership team and taking on this whole new responsibility um, in the earth community and helping us to live in harmony with all creation and um, especially thank you for the on behalf of the monarchs I think that's a really exciting project <laughs> and uh, look forward to watching how it unfolds thank you thank you thank you and it's great to know of um, your work and having a companion down under yeah definitely <laughs> definitely the thresholds team at Rahamim live work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be Wiradjuri country we give our respect and gratitude to their elders, past, present and emerging, who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy for more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.